out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. And we also love to delve into the world that is rock and pop and punk rock. This is an interview I did with Peter Crowley um, to talk about Max's Kansas City in New York. Because um, during the 70s, the mid-70s, um, until the early 80s, Peter was kind of one of the main people booking bands during that very exciting time. And um, I was curious, so I tracked him down, as you do, in Florida, and uh, found, find out, to find out more about, um, yes, life in Max's Kansas City. So this is the interview. Now, it's very long. So the first 40 minutes, I would say, is kind of a lot of detail about the building itself. So you might want to scrap that and fast forward it. I don't mind. It's nothing personal. Um, and then after that, we get down to a bit more about the actual club and uh, the booking period of the band, of the bands that he put on, and um, the latter years, which are fascinating. So, yes, Peter's um, got a lot of detail, and uh, yes, he's obviously been around. So, um, like I said, it's uh, I could have broken up into two halves, but I didn't, because I couldn't be bothered. So, yeah, first bit... In a lot about the premises, second bit, more about the bands. So, Peter, tell us a bit more about the actual building of Max's Kansas City. I know a little bit of the, the history before Mickey bought it. Uh, uh, I'm told it was a Chinese restaurant and probably had been a number of different kinds of restaurants over the, the 1940s, 50s early 60s yes Uh, mickey bought it at the end of uh, 65 and uh and he did a uh a bit of renovation not not a uh uh not a whole lot i don't think he had a ton of money at the time i mean he he was uh later on around 68 or 69, he did another renovation, uh, including putting uh, what we called rat fur on the walls. It was <laughs> it's sort of fuzzy, gray, fur-like material on yes on the wall down in the dining room downstairs. Um, the uh, the two two different maxes, I mean, the the the, the 1965, really 66. I mean, it didn't get up until the December. Yeah. 65 um, through uh, 74 uh, was uh, well. Actually, during that period, there were two two kind of different maxes because. From '66 to '69, or the very be- the winter of '69-70, mm-hmm. uh, it was a restaurant with a, uh, in the last. Was like, I'm gonna guess '68 uh, was the beginning of having the disco upstairs. There was a a little room upstairs. Uh, okay, let, let me backpedal a little. Uh, Max's Kansas City was 
situated in two buildings. So the front building was five stories high uh, in the American uh, idiom, the first floor being the ground floor. Uh, the back building was three stories high and they didn't match. That is to say the level of the floors were not the same. On the ground floor, they were the same, but the ceiling height in the two buildings were different. So the famous back room is in the back building. That building was rather small. Um, I'm not that good at guessing the number of feet, but uh, offhand, I would say about 30 or 35 feet square. Right. The room directly above that was the first showroom. Well, first it was a disco, uh, and then, and then uh, thanks to Danny Fields, uh, 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 they began bringing in uh, uh, live bands. In this tiny room that would hold at, at most 75 people and, and packed in. It didn't have a stage in the beginning or much of a stage. Um, which is why if you look at the bookings from uh, from the very early 70s, you'll see bands booked in for a week or two weeks or three weeks. Um, because if they had any kind of following, that was the only way you could accommodate everybody who wanted to see them. Yes, kind of like a Vegas residency, really, wasn't it? Well, kind of like that. And then only on a really small scale. <laughs> None of these were famous at the time that they that they uh, played in Max's. They they became famous later on. So I mean, when when you say Velvet Underground and Alice Cooper and the Stooges and the Whalers, those, those they were all beginners. Yes, they, you know they, they didn't. Uh, they didn't have any huge following uh, at at that time. The uh, okay, then the front building, one flight up, during the early maxes, housed the dishwashing room uh, directly above the kitchen, and there was a dumb waiter that so they ran the. The dirty dishes up and the clean dishes down on the dumbwaiter. There was a small area up in the front window on the uh, on what we call the second floor uh, with booths uh, and seating for uh, for diners. Uh, this was the Siberia area, as they called the. Uh, the, the the least um, uh, desirable place to sit in a in a famous yes uh, restaurant. Uh, they sent Brian Jones up there because they didn't know who he was. Nineteen sixty six. 
the downstairs was the restaurant and a bar. There was a bar that began near the front entrance, uh, continued along the wall on the north side of the uh, of the room, and went back about halfway in the in the front building, and then. And in front of that were tables and chairs and uh, for dining and and to the to the um, east of that bar was a, a fairly large open room with tables and chairs and, di- and uh, dining room and then there was a uh, a, a uh, the kitchen yeah. and uh, a narrow passage passage that took you back to the the famous back room. Yes. So when that that period of that kind of um, obviously you're sort of saying about sixty six roughly to to the to late sixties early seventies, had it already developed quite an in crowd? Oh yes, yes, very much so. Uh, two 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 uh, disparate crowds, both of which were connected to the art world but the front and the person you, you you might want to talk to if you can get a hold of him is Danny Fields because he can give you more in depth th- than I can mm-hmm. but uh, the front room Danny Danny described the denizens of the front room as the heterosexual alcoholics uh, these were the uh, abstract expressionists, the f- famous abstract artists of that time. Uh, all the, the big names hung out there. Yes. Uh, along with them were uh, bunches of models because it just happened accidentally that in the neighborhood were a number of photographer studios. And so the models came in and uh, and uh, uh, hung out with the with the uh, the artists and other people of in that crowd. The back room was colonized by Andy Warhol and and uh, you know the, the Jackie Curtis and Hollywood Lawn and uh, and. Um, uh, Kennedy Darling and uh, a whole bunch of theater people. Yes, there really wasn't that much of a pop art milieu, and I don't know how many, if any, of uh, contemporary Andy's contemporaries in that field uh, came to the back room. Uh, probably some, but mostly it was people from from the factory and from the off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway theater of the ridiculous and playhouse of the ridiculous. You can look those two things up, though. They were rivals in the similar theatrical movements. And People in that in that theater uh, crowd also 
uh, were once the, the New York Dolls began in 72, um, a number of people from that crowd formed bands of their own, including Wayne County, including uh, Ruby Lynn Rayner. Uh, so that was your your, your uh, backroom crowd. To uh, to be accepted back there, you just had to be part of that milieu uh, or acceptable to that milieu. So people who wandered back there accidentally would be uh, ostracized and, <laughs> and not particularly welcomed, and they would wander back out again. Uh, I'm sure you can read about a lot of this. Yes, yeah, no, that's that's interesting. So as the as the seventies progressed, because you weren't part of this this uh, management at that stage, were you? No, I was I was a customer in the back room in the sixties. And uh, 1970 or so, uh, I forget exactly when, but at, at one point, I had I had a business uh, uh, that I purposely located two blocks from Max's in, in order to be convenient uh, to that because Max's was my living room. Yes, and uh, uh, same thing that Andy did when he moved the factory down to. Uh, to uh, Union Square, but of course mine was on a much smaller scale. And uh, one of the boys who worked for me in 70 or 71 got mugged in Washington Square at two o'clock in the afternoon. And when that happened, I said, okay, we have to move. And uh, so we moved to California. Uh, so I was not there between 71 or 2 and 74. Yes. I was I lived in Sausalito. Um, and uh, my business didn't transplant well and it failed. Yeah. Uh, uh, so back to Max. Approximately at that same time, about 1971, might even have been late 1970, might have been early 72, I'm not exactly sure, but a very famous venue on McDougal Street in Greenwich Village called the Gaslight Cafe lost their lease, and the proprietor went to Mickey and asked if he could do shows in that upstairs room that had been uh, fairly recently become the little disco. Uh, and Mickey told him, yes, that man's name was Sam Hood. Right. H-O-O-D. Sam Hood brought in... Uh, Well, he was definitely responsible for the Whalers and, and uh, for Bruce Springsteen. Um, but he also brought in a, a, a number of uh, folk or folk blues kind of acts, the sort of acts that he had had in the 
Gaslight, which was also a very small room. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's the sort of entertainment they had for the next couple of years, uh, adding in the New York Dolls, the Velvet Underground. Those, of course, Alice Cooper and and uh, and uh, Stooges, and those four, I'm pretty sure, were brought in by Danny Fields, and I don't know exactly where the Danny Fields bookings uh, ended off, and the and Sam Hoods began, or or how they were intertwined, or whatever. I, mean, I wasn't there; I was in California. Yes. Yeah. But then, so uh, no, no, sorry. After and then, and then I was going to say, and then, and then, how did that develop into the next kind of to the mid seventies? Well, uh, Mickey, for, for various due to various personal mistakes and whatever, uh, lost the club in nineteen seventy four. Um, he just walked away from it. He didn't uh, file a bankruptcy or anything like that. Most of the people he owed money to, you know, the meat people or the vegetable people or whatever, uh, just took their loss and, and didn't uh, didn't file any kind of a, a case for their money. But Con Ed, the uh, electric company, electric and gas company, uh, filed a lien against the uh, against the property uh, for their uh, for the light bill that he owed. Uh, that lien was for three thousand five hundred dollars. Meanwhile, Tommy and Laura Dean who at the time were operating an airport lounge, not not in the airport, but, but nearby, I think in a in a motel or something like that, uh, near um, JFK, uh, Idlewild Airport, uh, were in Paris on vacation. And they picked up the Paris Herald Tribune. And there was a small story of Max's Kansas City having uh, uh, shuttered its doors and and gone uh, broke. And they said to each other, how could such an iconic and famous place go broke? This is, this is, uh, uh, you know, very strange. So they called their lawyer or one of their lawyers or whatever in New York and said, would you check and see what it would take to get this place? And they found out that it would take paying the uh, $3,500 and negotiating a lease with the uh, owner of the building. So they did exactly that. They bought Max's Kansas City for $3,500. Nice. Could have been <laughs> a good day by then. Wow. Uh, okay. They, of course, did not, they came from an entirely different world. So they, they had no idea 
of the essence of Nexus, Kansas City. Uh, they found a restaurant that was, was a rather shop-worn and in, in need of well, quite a bit of repair. And they didn't, they didn't just repair things. They came in and redecorated. Their, uh, their idea of uh, being hip and modern was... Uh, it was goofy to say the least. <laughs> and so when they were done, Max's looked like a, like a kind of cheesy airport lounge. <laughs> nice. They had plastic imitation Tiffany lamps hanging over the tables. They had a... Uh, plastic stained glass ceiling with lights behind it, like a false drop ceiling. The main color of which was kind of a a, a, a bilious orange. (laughs) They had torn the beautiful old bar out entirely and replaced it with a a, a freestanding singles bar type of uh, rectangular uh, bar with seating all the way around it. That was uh, de rigueur for uh, for bars of the 1970s. It was a very, uh, very singles bar kind of thing. Yeah, they yeah. also put... Okay, so they put that in the the front end entrance of, of the place, and then the central uh, downstairs was uh, devoted to tables and booths and whatnot, or a restaurant. In the back room, they didn't do much of anything to. They were pretty much left it alone. Later on, they decided to redecorate it, and they made it look like a pizza parlor. With a <laughs> with uh, plastic ivy and stuff. It was pretty funny. Yes. Nobody was back there after, uh, after uh, 1975. It was uh, a place you'd go if you wanted to have a quiet conversation with somebody because it was empty and there was no noise. But, but uh, nobody colonized. No. Uh, upstairs, they abandoned a small back room and let me go back downstairs for a second downstairs they put in a more modern and smaller kitchen with a dishwashing facility attached to it so there was no more uh, dumbwaiter upstairs thing they abandoned the upstairs back room um, just used it to to store things or whatever. And they opened up the area that had been the dishwashing room and a small amount of, of dining area and uh, opened up that entire front building floor, put a similar bar, almost identical uh, uh, rectangular bar in the middle of it booths up in the front window uh, they they 
had a jukebox upstairs and a jukebox downstairs. Both jukeboxes were were uh, stocked by the jukebox company, so they were the the music on them was what you would find in in any uh, ordinary restaurant. Um, the latest hits and some oldies. Uh, they built a small stage on the downtown east part of the room upstairs. It was uh, it only came out from the wall about six feet, but it was long. And in front of it, they they built a dance floor. Uh, on that stage, they they put disco bands, bands that played the latest disco hits. Uh, and they had the only live disco in Manhattan. Uh, I do not know whether the upstairs was open during the week or not. I, mean, I know for sure it was open on Fridays and Saturdays. They only charged $3.50 to get into it, and it was an immediate big hit with uh, a mostly Puerto Rican crowd from the Lower East Side who uh, really enjoyed having a... Uh, a disco, because disco was a hot thing at that time, mm. and having a, a live disco band made it really popular with that crowd. They advertised Max's is Max is back was their uh, advertising slogan, even though there never was anybody named Max. And for about two weeks. Uh, large crowds of people came to see what had been done with Max's and instantly discovered that Max's wasn't Max's, that it was an airport lounge with a live disco upstairs. Yes. Which so after two weeks of, of being packed, the place was empty. Uh... Tommy Dean then started going around Greenwich Village and asking people what had he done wrong. And one of the people he asked was Wayne County. And he may have found Wayne at the 82 Club. He may have found Wayne at the CBGB. I'm not sure. But in any case, Wayne said to him, don't, don't ask me, ask my manager. And so Tommy called me, and uh, I went to, to the new Maxis, and he asked me, what am I doing wrong? And I said, do you have a legal pad so I can write, write everything down? <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote about 100 things that he had done wrong. He didn't believe me because everything I told him was completely contrary to the culture that he came from and the business culture that he came from. 
but he was desperate. So he let me have Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. So yeah, so that that that, that reminds me now that yes, the disco, the the live band disco was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So he let me have this is in the fall of. 75. This would be the maybe September, October. I don't know. I'm very bad at remembering exactly when things happen. But immediately I I booked in bands like, uh, of course, I put Wayne County in right away, and I put put, uh, the Ramones and the Talking Heads and Blondie and Mink DeVille and Immediately, I had crowds on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. So, because the the live disco didn't do so hot on Wednesday and Thursday, he then gave me Wednesday and Thursday. So now we're going into December, November, December, January, February. I'm doing Sunday through Thursday, and he's keeping the uh, the tacky disco on the weekends. It was a little bit weird because the, the, my bands had to play on that strange stage, but but you know they made do. The Heartbreakers came in. Uh, I came up with Hilly's idea. I stole a lot of things from Hilly. I stole all his bands, and I stole. The idea for a uh, for a festival. Uh, the summer before, he had done a, a underground rock festival at the CBGBs, and I think for a week or maybe two weeks, I don't remember. <clears throat> so I decided for for spring break, and I checked on the various colleges, and they weren't all they didn't all have their spring break on the same week, mm. so. So uh, I, I spaced it over the two weeks that would cover all the local universities' uh, spring break time, and uh, that I would have a Max's Easter festival. But I didn't get the Friday Saturday. I only still had Sunday through Thursday, so I had two uh, five-day weeks. And I booked everybody that was uh, that was uh, a, a, a big draw or a, or a small draw, whatever you know. Mm. Everybody who was worthy and a, and a few who were almost worthy, as it were, as it were, into those ten days. I did four bands a night, and in the Village Voice ad, I, I talked Tommy into taking a full page ad. And I, uh, I uh, to cover the Friday Saturday, I, I just put a line in the middle that said, "The festival continues at CBGB's on Friday and Saturday." I didn't I didn't ask Kelly if I could do that. I just did it. Uh, so probably helped him out a little bit for that weekend. Yes. And uh, every night was was. Packed to the doors, and before the 
two weeks were up, Tommy said, okay, I'm, I'm throwing out the disco and, uh, and I'm going to build you a stage. So he built a stage on the east wall, a stage a little deeper than the uh, south wall stage, and made a few other changes. In the beginning, the bands had to bring their own PA in. Uh, after a, a few weeks of that, Tommy was tired of paying his help to stick around till six, six or seven in the morning while everybody loaded all that crap out again. And uh, so he made a deal with Steve Bondi to put a permanent PA system in, at least. And he built a sound booth to accommodate the, uh, the new PA. Uh, we operated with that set up for uh, I really can't remember exactly how long that was, a year or two. Uh, I'm trying to remember whether 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 the upstairs was expanded into the back building before I left for England in January of 77. I think it happened when I came back. Right. So basically it functioned with the, the upstairs back room being empty and the uh, showroom being the much larger front, front building with the bar there. Dressing rooms and offices were on the third floor, second floor in the European or British parlance. Um, I think in the summer of 78 is when, when uh, Tommy decided to expand into the back building and they had a construction company come in in the middle of the night and tear down a three foot thick brick wall, a bearing wall that held up three more stories above us in the front building uh, and uh, they replaced that three foot brick wall with two skinny pillars and an I-beam that ran from the two side brick walls to hold up the building and this was all done without permits mm. Night. And the bricks and all that were more or less smuggled out. Uh, <laughs> one could do that sort of thing in New York in the 1970s. Uh, yes. When the inspector came around, you handed him $100 and he went away. So, with the upstairs opened up, now the capacity upstairs is over 200. 
okay, well, that's the architecture description. I don't know if I covered everything. Yeah. So what was, I mean, generally then, on that, that kind of front, which was quite amazing, I mean, there was there was definitely, you know, because what I'd sort of noticed when they doing various shows over the years and interviews is that there was definitely a vibe of the 60s, but things kind of, like most things, there's a honeymoon period and then eventually things do change and, you know, it you can't keep that kind of energy going for too long before things get a bit grubby. And obviously you'd seen the 60s and the Andy Warhol crowd and that kind of glam crowd move into a kind of a bit of a no-man's land and then the punk scene. So... How did that sort of feel? Because you took over, or you were certainly part of it, on the driving seat during the punk period, really. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, we didn't call it punk. Uh, the, the, the punk magazine people stuck that label on us and then and then went about deciding who who was worthy of being punk and who wasn't. Um, they, these are these are uh, suburban boys from Connecticut who really didn't know much about anything. Yeah. Uh, but they succeeded enormously. Uh, anyway, uh, how did I get started? Well, we have to roll back a, a little bit into 1975. When I took over managing Wayne County, there were three venues where you could book uh, uh, an unsigned band doing original material. Uh, the CBGB is certainly the most famous of the three. The 82 Club was still going, but but barely. Um, the owner of the 82 Club was, was uh, very ill in the last days of his life, uh, and it didn't survive his his death and then there was a place in in midtown called the little hippodrome that was it for the whole town uh so uh, wayne played at the uh little hippodrome and then it went out of business not because of wayne but <laughs> coincidentally mm. and then the 82 club uh, closed because the owner died, and so all there was by the uh, by the spring and summer of '75 was the CBGB. So I went to CBGBs to see Hilly uh, and asked him, you know, could I have a a weekend for Wayne? And he told me come back in two weeks. I thought that was a little odd because. The two most popular bands at that time in New York were the New York Dolls and Wayne County. But, you know, I just said, okay, and I came back in two weeks, and then he told me, come back in two weeks again. And now I'm getting really, really confused. So I go to Wayne and I say, Wayne, is there a reason that Hilly is giving me the runaround here? And Wayne said to me, well, I was down there to see the Ramones a few weeks ago. And Hilly said to me, did I want to play? And I said, okay, and I would get back to him. And then I never got back to him. So I said, okay, now I've solved the mystery. Hilly is uh, 
it's feeling uh, 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 personally hurt or something, whatever. Mm. Um, and 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 he's biting off his nose to spite his face. So, in the old adage, if the uh, mountain won't come to Mohammed, Mohammed must go to the mountain. And I went to a friend of mine and asked if he knew of any uh, any kind of a bar or place where I could do shows. And he said, not only do I know a place, but they owe me money. Come on, let's go there. His name was Mike Umbers. And uh, he's a, a fairly notorious Greenwich Village character from that time. Uh, rumored to be a gangster. He was a, a guy who played the role of a gangster pretty well, but he was a one-man gangster. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we got in his Cadillac and we drove up to 23rd Street and we walked into this little bar called Mother's, which was virtually empty. And he said to the owner who was sitting on the bar stool, uh, uh, this is Peter Crowley, and he's going to put on shows here. Uh, so I talked to the owner. He he agreed to, to uh, enlarge the stage. They had a, a little tiny stage for uh, for drag queens to lip sync on, just sort of like a one-person stage. Mm. And uh, he agreed to, to enlarge the stage and... and uh, and um, I began booking the bands. And, of course, the first band I booked was Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys for a week. And I got one of the local bands who owned a PA to be the opening act because we didn't own a PA. Uh, got to be a few days before opening night and there was still no stage so I went over to the lumber yard and I bought plywood and two by fours and whatever and I got down there and I built the stage myself and uh, Mothers was very small it was two, two side by side small narrow storefronts you came in the one, and there was a bar and uh, a couple of tables and a jukebox at the back, and then a doorway that went over to the other. And the stage was up in what would have been the front window, if there was a window. Uh, and there was a kitchen in the back that was essentially abandoned. The kitchen had, uh, the, the, the French fryer had, had just been turned off and so that the solid grease was still there <laughs> nice. and uh, nobody was using the kitchen for anything so we used it for the dressing room uh, the place was packed for a week uh, every night uh, a full house which is uh, 75 people or 80 people something like that and we were charging $3 at the door. There was a jukebox right next to the, next to that rear uh, entrance to the showroom. And uh, 
it had almost all disco on it because it was meant to be a gay bar. And Mother's had a waiter named Warren who was the, the disco waiter. He would, he would sashay up and down the aisles uh, uh, waiting on the punk rockers <laughs> with the disco playing in between the band sets. It was quite quite fun. Yes. Uh, and no, nobody minded the disco music. It was it was like it was kind of comedy, you know. And and then with with Warren shaking his behind and, and going on waiting on people, it was it was a really cool kind of mixture of of scenes. You know, the owner never came by again, far as I know. Uh, he lived out uh, up, up in Westchester, and so the. A handsome Thai bartender essentially went into business for himself. He would go to the liquor store and buy vodka and whiskey or whatever and beer and and ring up a few sales where he used the uh, the actual stock of the bar um, and then pocket most of the money from from selling his own his own booze oh he's the only person who made any money out of there (laughs) uh the three dollars on the door was so little i couldn't take anything for myself so when wayne was there we gave wayne 250 out of each out of each three dollars and we gave the the opening act 50 cents and, and uh and uh, you know, mostly to pay for their PA. And uh, since that was a success, I began. That's that's when I started stealing all Hilly's bands because I figured with that he he wouldn't uh, accommodate me. So you know, what do I care? Uh, I also put in a few bands that I found on my own, or that other musicians brought to me. So Mothers was going very well when I got the job at Max's. Uh, to my ever-ending shame, I just walked out of Mother's uh, uh, when I went over to Max's and didn't look back. Uh, Mike Umbers was not pleased. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, but uh, never he never got to yell at me because it was at about that same time, the Gambino family ran him out of town because mm. he had had he had had businesses that competed with their businesses, and they didn't like that. Anyway, so then I took I took my whole mother's operation, just moved it into Max's. Now, in addition to that, because Max's was. Uh, larger and uh, because Tommy had some money I decided I would try booking some of the kinds of bands that Sam Hood had been booking in the earlier 70s and that meant I did Mango Santa Maria I did um, James Cotton I did uh, Victoria Spivey. 
I did uh, discotheques in the Six Olets. All of these bands required a contract uh, with a guarantee. And I quickly learned that I wasn't very good at that type of booking. Uh, we, we lost money on all those bookies, mainly because the following of those bands weren't interested in coming to Max's. They they went to the more established blues or or Latin clubs or whatever. And so I then concentrated entirely on the uh, the downtown unsigned rock and roll bands who would work on a on a handshake. Again, very foolishly, I took no money from myself and gave all the money to the bands. Yes, tricky. Tommy uh, asked me what did I need for myself, and I didn't think it through. I thought, uh, in fact, I focused on the word need, and I said, well, I need to pay my rent <laughs> and stuff like that. So I said, give me $100 a week. <laughs> I can't imagine looking back how incredibly stupid that was. <laughs> <laughs> I should have given myself a, a dollar off, off each admission and, you know, a small percentage of the bar. But I wasn't thinking. I was just thinking of taking care of Wayne and taking care of the bands. Uh, I don't think any of them knew that I had done this, and, and they did not know the extent to which they had sacrificed myself <laughs> for their well-being. But they did know how much money they made at Max's. They were, they were, they were, uh, they were raking it in, the ones who had a, a good following. Yes. So, so as... There was, a, there was a hilly tax. And that meant that if, if you... Uh, if you sold a thousand dollars worth of tickets, or or a hundred dollars worth of tickets on a, on your booking at CBGB's, the money for the PA, the doorman, and the light man was taken off the top, and I think that amounted to oh, somewhere around a hundred dollars. And so, if you sold a hundred dollars worth of tickets on a Tuesday night. You owed Hilly the hundred, so you got nothing. Um, on the weekend, the, the, if you sold a thousand dollars worth of the tickets, you, you like, uh, Hilly took the hundred off the top, which was perfectly reasonable. But it was not reasonable on a Tuesday when you only sold eighty dollars worth of tickets and ended up owing Hilly twenty. I told Tommy, we can't do that. We we need to make Max's more uh, inviting to the bands, we need to just give them the door money. And and Tommy agreed. One of the reasons he was able to agree was the fact that downstairs was doing a wonderful lunch business and a terrific happy hour business. 
with the local office workers in the area. This crowd had nothing to do with maps as as the you know the institution of of uh, the hip underground place. It was just a an inexpensive bar and restaurant that uh, was very popular in the neighborhood. Uh, the downstairs jukebox catered to to that crowd. So I got Tommy to put in a second jukebox. We had a daytime jukebox and a nighttime jukebox. I put all the records on the nighttime jukebox. And so we had uh, everything from the Dolls and the Stooges and the Velvet Underground to Chuck Berry and Little Richard and and uh, the Damned and the Sex Pistols and the Count Bishops and Eddie and the Hot Rods and in other words uh, we had the uh, we had the um, uh, all, 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 all the uh, uh, what would you call it? The, 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 the stuff that that got labeled punk later on. Yes, was on my jukebox. Uh, the uh, the transition would occur at about eight o'clock. So once once the the, the daytime restaurant manager had milked every penny out of the office workers that he could get uh, in the uh, in the happy hour uh, we switched jukeboxes and that immediately ran the rest of the office workers out because they couldn't stand that music and uh, then our crowd would begin to come in the uh, sound checks for upstairs began at six o'clock and uh, bands would come in if they were going to play upstairs. They'd usually buy dinner downstairs. Uh, and and the point being that the downstairs would have a ton of money already in the register uh, before we even started the sound check. So I didn't have a whole lot of pressure to, to make a whole lot of money upstairs. I could put bands based on their merit rather than their popularity. Of course, it was always good if they had merit and popularity. Uh, but I could do things like like uh, give Lydia lunch with uh, Teenage Jesus the residency for, for like eight weeks. Uh, and, uh, and And not have anybody give me a hard time about it. So, anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you still there? I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry. Bored you to tears, No, no, not at all. Not at all. I was just kind of curious because I was obviously, as the '70s progressed, you know, there would be the glam thing that. Polly mentioned, you know, that it kind of lasts a little while, then it changes to something else, and then the sound becomes, you know, what we refer to as punk, and then that slightly starts to lose its kind of... These, these, these labels have to do 
much more with costumes and presentation than they do with music. So glam is just rock and roll with with a lot of velvet and and sateen and whatever and makeup. Uh, you know, if you look, you listen to uh, David Bowie or or uh, Alice Cooper or or um, T Rex. They're just rock and roll bands. Yes. Uh, oh, ab- absolutely. You, think, you listen to the punk bands who knew how to play. They're just rock and roll bands. I mean, they're, they're, none of none of the punk bands call themselves punk, including the the British ones. Um, the uh, the people who put the label on us were the was punk magazine, and they they came in. In 76, I think. And uh, when their first issue came out, I was sitting in my office one afternoon and Didi Ramon came banging on the door and I opened the door and he said, Peter, Peter, we got to go kick their ass. They're calling us punks. How sweet. (laughs) That was the initial response. Yes. Then within within a matter of days, everybody realized that this punk magazine was wonderful publicity. That it was that, you know, it was bringing in a whole slew of of new customers and, and new following for the bands, etc. And uh, and so everybody said, okay, well we'll be we'll be we'll be punks. Yes, uh, it may, it I, I may... want to roll back just. Uh-huh. No, no, you, you're just about to say you're going to roll back. Oh, well, it's just 1972, maybe early 73. David Johansson was being interviewed by a journalist uh, regarding the New York Dolls. And he was asked, what do you call your music? Now, the New York Dolls played rhythm and blues. Uh, the... Uh, the um, Synonym for rhythm and blues is rock and roll. Uh, that's what they played. But he knew that if he said we play rhythm and blues or we play rock and roll, that would be perceived as old-fashioned. Mm. Kid, kids don't want to want to go for the music of the, their elders, you know. So, so David said, oh, "We play new wave music." That's 1972 two or three, the winter of 72, 73. So even though uh, Seymour Stein claims credit for coining the phrase new wave or, or stealing it from the French cinema, David was very well aware of the French cinema and, and figured that was a really good, good uh, label to put on New York Dolls music because it would sound new and exciting and whatever. Mm. Okay, it never caught on, obviously, in the early to mid-70s. Uh, punk did catch on real fast um, because of Punk Magazine. The Ramones were being called punk when they went to England and basically kicked off the, the whole punk scene in England which was still relatively underground uh, and very London-oriented at at the point that the Ramones got there. However, 
the bands that would form the, the first punk wave in England were already playing when the Ramones got there. Uh, they just weren't known to anybody. They had they had a little tiny following. They could play in a small club and and have a a few dozen people come. That's the the Sex Pistols and the and the uh, Buzzcocks and the and the uh, the Damned and the Pistols and the Damned, of course, were first. Uh, the Damned were first to have a record. Uh, the Pistols quite accidentally caused the punk scene to become national and huge uh, explosion of teenage rock and roll insanity because they went on that Bill Grundy show. Mm. He was interested in punk because it was an upcoming phenomenon in London. And, uh, and then they, he was drunk apparently and they they uh, they did the whole swearing thing where they said they said shit and then they said fuck and whatever and this went out on live TV all over England and caused this huge brouhaha this enormous thing and almost instantly tens of thousands of kids became punk rockers and that's. Um, but the word, the punk word, came out of the punk magazine people. Yes. And, then, uh, and there we go. Who had written about the damned and and the Sex Pistols and and all of that? And then you got immediately you got fanzines like Sniffing Glue and uh, Kid Stuff and Ripped and Torn uh, that started writing about uh, all that English scene and. And the fanzines were in turn written about in the mainstream uh, English press. And you had three weekly papers at that time uh, distributed all all over the British Isles. Um, Melody Maker being the oldest, most established one. Sounds and Record Mirror being the, the upstarts. Uh, and and then that, you had and then and I was going to say you do, you we did also have the NME which was that kind of the other one was yeah, exactly yes yes uh, the the NME which Rotten thing sings about in the uh, I use the NME yes uh, the double entendre there and uh, and so uh, the, 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 the England's a sp- very small place. It's a, a smaller than many states in the United States, uh, and and so things can spread like wildfire so much faster. And of course, we we can't leave out uh, John Peel, who uh, in um, December of '76 did the first punk rock radio show, and he played three songs off the Max's album on that radio show. Uh, which made me very happy. <laughs> yes. Oh, very good. Did you, I mean, um, I was just going to ask you, did you actually like the music? Because obviously you were not one of the, you know, young kids on the scene. You know, you were coming from a slightly different kind of, background in your well you have, you have to understand that that, that i 
I like what I like. I try to keep the same mentality that I had when I was 15 years old uh, forever. Yes. So that, you know, I don't try to like anything. It either it either catches me when I hear it or, or it doesn't. And uh, did I like every song in the... Um, in the new scene or every band? No. Uh, but I'm one of the few people who ran out and bought the Stooges album, you know, and, and, and saw them live even before they had an album or, or right as they were releasing the album. Um, uh, I bought the Velvet Underground the, the minute it came out. That was primarily due to Danny Fields' influence. Danny uh, and I were friends. Uh, in the 60s. Yes, absolutely. So just to, I mean, so obviously you had, you know, like a lot of people, they have a really amazing moment and you were on the scene, the zeitgeist. Then what happens kind of in the early 80s when obviously things start to change again? Well, in, 19, in 1980, Max's began to go downhill. The owners, Tommy and Laura, were becoming less and less interested in the club and more and more interested in various extracurricular activities they were involved in. And we lost our restaurant manager and subsequently had a series of people appointed to that job who were incapable. Uh... At the same time, the, uh, the, the, the the underground rock clubs in New York were springing up like mushrooms. Yeah, you had Hurrah and Danceteria and the Ritz and Club 57 and Irving Plaza, and I'm sure I'm leaving out some tracks. Mm. Uh, that's a ton of them. On the Rocks was another one. They were just all over the place, and these were these were taking uh, some of my of my uh, people away. Uh, the Mud Club took everybody away. It became the hangout place. Mm. We were no longer the hangout place. The downstairs at Max's. Uh, attracted a uh, uh, groups of youth who had no interest in in the rock and roll or anything else except drugs. Uh, so Max's went slowly downhill in 1980, faster and faster in 81. <clears throat> the restaurant closed sometime in the spring or summer of 81, and we just continued limping along upstairs. And it was pathetic. I, I, I would have walked away, except I had no way to walk away too. Mm. Partly because of, of, my, of my age, I'm guessing, and partly because the people opening these new venues believed they knew what they were doing. Nobody was offering me work. Uh, 
So I wrote it. I wrote Maxis down to the miserable end. And it was a, it was a terrible, horrible miserable end. Yes. Um, the younger kids, or a, a large numbers of younger kids, uh, got into what was called hardcore. Same thing happened in England, really. I don't think they called it hardcore, but you, you've got the rise of uh, the exploited and those kind of bands. <laughs> around 1980 yes uh we we got the uh we got the um the hardcore scene hardcore bands i mean i i, I went along with them mostly because they were what the kids were doing and i i felt that was my responsibility was to give them a stage uh, Hilly tried them in the evening and, and quickly stopped because their audience spent no money. The, the 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 ones who did drink would would do it outside the club and come in drunk, and at least half the crowd didn't drink at all. So they they would just wanted water, and uh, so. Hilly got smart, and, and well, he didn't get smart, but but a a fellow named uh, David Parsons uh, told Hilly, uh, "Let's try uh, weekend matinees with the hardcore, and instead of charging five dollars to get in, we'll charge ten, and the house will keep five of it, pay the bands out of the other five, and this would make up for the." The, the no beer sales and so they did that I didn't do that I just tried booking them on the on the Friday and Saturday nights oh towards the end of of 81 I was down to just Friday and Saturday nights yes in the place dark the rest of the week there was no restaurant uh, and then famously it closed and uh Tommy Dean said that that I, uh, that the fact that I booked punk rock was the reason that it closed. Uh, he was uh, in in a, in a really delusional state of mind yeah. by then, and the demise of the club went along with the demise of his reasoning power. <laughs> so there I was. That uh, was the end of 1981. And uh, I had to go get a job, which I did. And I got a job in a uh, in a place that booked studio musicians. It was just a job. No longer. I was no longer doing anything interesting. I was just going to work and earning a salary. You know, right? Yes. And, well, that's the, the 80s. Uh, I liked the bad brains before they turned into the world's worst reggae band. When they were being a, the world's best hardcore band, I thought they were terrific. Yes. So just briefly then, I was just going to say, how does, so then with your, you know, getting into the, the regular world of work, is that, and you say that was the, that was your 80s, what happens just kind of briefly until you kind of think, right, retirement, that's it. 
from then till now? Roughly. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, I, 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 I was uh, in a, in, in a uh, long-term relationship uh, with a gay boy who uh, was going to college. And so, uh, you know, half my age. And, uh, and uh, so that's why I had to go get a job. I mean, you know, I had this responsibility of taking care of a, a kid who would, had, had walked out of his parents' house and, and had, we had to get him through school. And uh, anyway, that's what I did until he finished school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I then mo- moved wherever uh, wherever the the world t- took him because uh, you know the, that was the, uh, the the main focus there. So. We lived in Chicago land, in the suburbs of Chicago for a while. Uh, and then we moved to California for a while. He, he had a, a, he had issues and one of his issues was never liked it wherever we lived. And so we had to move all the time. And uh, so I spent the next 20 years moving a lot and working at various jobs. In California in the 90s, I tried starting a record company. Uh, Called it Variant Records. And uh, we just had one artist, uh, Von Elmo. Um, he, He had been supposed to be on Max's record company. And uh, as you know, there wasn't much of a Max's record company. The reason for that was the, again, that uh, Tommy was, uh, was losing it. Um, I had recorded three acts for the, the record company. This is not counting the, uh, the, the Max's album, the original Max's album. Uh, the Senders, and we got that record out, the uh, seven-song super single, uh, which will probably never be reissued because not enough people know who the Senders are uh, to warrant pressing records at this point. Mm. It's a terrible shame because it's a fabulous record. Well, that one got out, uh, didn't get much distribution or anything. The other two records were another EP by the Terrorists, a a punky reggae band, and a record by Roland Alfonso backed by the Terrorists. Those were both both meant to be uh, 12-inch EPs. So Tommy came to me and he said, I've done some market research. And I went to myself, oh, God. And then he said, uh, uh, I checked with my Jamaican maid, and she told me nobody ever heard of Roland Alfonso. 
And so we're not putting out those records. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so it took me 40 years to get those records out. But they're finally out there on the Jungle label. And they're out because people at Jungle knew that tens, tens of thousands of people know who Roland Alfonso is. <laughs> Just not a 19-year-old maid in, in 1980. <laughs> yes, a tricky moment, really. So, it's yeah. like asking your Italian maid, does she know who Johnny Thunders is? And she's going to go, no. And then, you know, and then we're, <laughs> we're not talking about bands that are known or, or, or stars that are known to millions. We're talking about stars that are known to a few thousand and you can sell a few thousand records. And that's, that, that was a concept that uh, Tommy didn't understand. Yes. So, I mean, just then, so what happens to people like, I know that, um, yeah, I mean, the, the original guy, Mickey, passes away, doesn't he? He dies when he's 50. Yeah, Mickey opened up another rest, another couple of restaurants, uh, didn't have a lot of success. Yeah. And he passed away. And what happened to Tommy uh, Dean? Um, yes. Tommy Dean and Laura, <laughs> while Max's was still in the process of dying, and one of the reasons behind its dying, they decided that the best way to make money was to make money. And again, they had this brilliant idea while they were on vacation in in Paris, they noticed that the paper money in Europe, the different denominations were different sizes to facilitate, you know, a blind person uh, uh, making change, presumably. And uh, it dawned upon them that American money is all the same size. So Laura thought, well, let's see if I, and the biggest problem to printing money is that you can't get the correct paper, that it only goes to the, to the U.S. Mint. And so Laura decided she was going to come home and figure out how to bleach out $1 bills. And she figured out a formula whereby one could render a $1 bill pure white without destroying it. At the same time, Sony had come out with a color copier that was so precise it could render the image of a $100 bill perfect, perfectly. So if you put the bleached out $1 bill into the color photocopy machine, a $100 bill would come out. And they figured out how to pass these bogus bills by going to casinos and buying chips. Because 
a cashier who's selling chips takes in so many hundreds, there was no way to pinpoint who gave them the bad money. And so for several years, Tommy and Laura got away with, with uh, uh, passing their, their, uh, their homemade money. <clears throat> Yes. And turning into real money. Tommy did make the mis make one mistake. He paid the the Con Ed bill with a couple of bad hundreds. And a vice president from Con Ed came by Max's and said to Tommy, We'll we'll be glad to take your uh, he, he, you know, demanding uh, to, uh, to be paid in, in real money for these bad bills and said, from now on, Tommy, we'll be happy to take your check, but we will not take your cash anymore. Now, somebody operating on all cylinders would figure, okay, it's time to get out of the funny money business. Because mm -hmm. if Con Ed caught me, how far can the Treasury Department be behind? But Tommy was flying high and believed that he was invincible. And so they kept on going to the casino and passing these bills. And then Laura made a mistake. She used one of the bad 100s to buy a pocketbook in the gift shop. In Atlantic City. And now they had her photograph on the on the video passing the bill. They knew they knew who, who whose bill it was, etc. And the people at uh, at Atlantic City who are the kind of people you don't want to owe money to. <clears throat> My drift. Yes. Uh, called Tommy in and said, "You owe us approximately uh, one one million dollars," because now they knew who who'd been giving them all the the bad money, and it was nearly a million dollars. So on hand. And the only way he could get it and save his life was to sell next to Kansas City. And of course, the business wasn't worth a nickel by then. We're talking 1981. Yes. He had bought the building with the money I made him. And although it wasn't worth a million in the market at that time, it's, it's worth many millions now, but uh, the uh, woman who owned the office building next door was willing to give him the million just to get rid of Max's Kansas City so that she wouldn't come, be, be, she and her tenants wouldn't be coming into all the broken glass on the sidewalk and the and the vomit and the blood and whatever. Mm 
And so he got the millions and and paid off the uh, the people. And right behind the people was where it was the Treasury Department. And they arrested Laura. And they were going to prosecute her for passing all this bad money. And Tommy, Tommy went to the prosecuting attorney and said, if you let her go, I will plead guilty to everything. And so they let her go. She, she was never prosecuted. And Tommy went off to be a guest of the United States government for four years from approximately 1982 or three to, uh, to 86 or seven. Yes, blimey. An, <laughs> an amazing finish to that story. Are they still, al- are they still alive today? Uh, he, he wrote all this all up and, and, and was hoping to get a movie deal, but, but that never happened for him. Okay, now he's back out again. Uh, Laura's, Laura died while he was uh, away in prison. That was sad. And uh, when he got out, her father uh, gave him a job. And he got a job in a company that was refitting slot machines so they could take credit cards. Yeah, there's an insidious uh, yes. thing. I mean, you, you know, these poor people would put their credit card into the slot machine and then start pulling the handle until they hit their credit limit. <laughs> yes, that's rather sad. This is a horrible thing. But anyway, he went around and, and sold these uh, uh, the, the refitting of these machines to the various casinos all over the United States. Yeah. And he was doing that. And then came a time when all the casino uh, slot machines had been refitted and his job became redundant. And uh, the people who owned that company gave Tommy a golden parachute of one million dollars. Wow. That's 1996. So right about that same time, Tommy had contacted me. Well, as soon as he had all this money, he, he contacted me and he contacted Joy Ryder. I think he actually he contacted Joy Ryder and she contacted me. And uh, Tommy had us looking for a location at which he could open up a new Maxis. Joy, places, none of which were uh, really uh, suitable. I didn't find anything. I looked and looked. I kept telling Tommy, be patient, be patient. The right place will pop up at the right time. He grew impatient. And without asking me, he leased a location on 52nd Street. 
this location had already been the location of two other attempts to move from downtown to uptown. Both of these attempts had failed. One was the village case. The other was the Lone Star Cafe. Both of those operations reopened on 52nd Street and a few months later went belly up. Tommy signed the lease and then called me in as a consultant. I came and I said, well, you've, you've put your foot in it again, Tommy. <clears throat> you want a list of what you've done wrong. <laughs> he didn't want to listen to me, of course, because he'd already signed the lease. I said, well, you might be able to get out of this mess if we do everything here correctly. There is, I do have a, a plan. I don't know that it'll work for sure. But I know that if you don't do it, you have no chance whatsoever. He then fired me <laughs> and spent about 600000 of his million dollars renovating the new space. I mean, tore the whole front off it. I mean, just spent money like it was water. I had told him that he needed to spend as little as possible, fix the destroyed bathrooms, do necessary repairs in the kitchen, spend a little bit of money decorating, and save most of your million for the purpose of publicity because that's what's going to work, if anything's going to work. Well, he did exactly the opposite of what I asked him to do. And he opened up. He had a partner there who was behind all these uh, ideas of having this really swank restaurant and spending all this money to make it gorgeous and blah, 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 blah. They opened up with a menu that had $20 lunches uh, in a neighborhood full of people who uh, who earned $400 a week. I mean, it was insane. Um the nighttime menu was, uh, you know, $50 dinners and stuff. He, they hired a very expensive chef. Uh, food was fabulous. It was, it was really great. Nobody bought it. They were selling six lunches a day and, uh, and maybe seven or eight dinners. Uh, so Tommy calls me up and says, come save me. And I said, Tommy, you're forgetting the fact that when you first hired me to be your consultant, I told you that if you made one misstep, I could not save you. That uh, this wasn't 1976. This was 1977. Or 1997. The world had changed. 
there there was not a scene that I could draw from. There was, you know, it was it wasn't happening. I said, however, I will come and do my best. But in order to make it a success, you're going to have to raise more money. So he got rid of the partner, the idiot partner. Uh, Peter, the bartender, who had been the bartender at Max's in the 70s, was bartending there on, uh, on, uh, on uh, 52nd Street in the 90s. And it just so happened that his wife was in the business of putting together entrepreneurs with investors. And so she began sending people with deep pockets over to Tommy to, to interview with Tommy to, to see if they wanted to lend him money or invest in his venture. They invariably ended up saying, going back to her and saying, Tommy is the kind of guy you really like to hang out with. I wouldn't lend him a dime. <laughs> <laughs> and so he talked his way out of uh, getting any more investment. In the meantime, in order to stall off the inevitable death of this new venture, I did shows there. And the shows were very successful, but the the lunch and dinner were still doing, you know, five lunches and six dinners, and so there, there was there was no hope. It was it was, and eventually it just ground to a halt. Uh, at that point. Tommy disappeared. I didn't know where he went or what had happened to him. Uh, there, there, are, there, are, there are many more complications to this whole story. Yes, uh, I, I could imagine. A whole kind of patent place, bizarre uh, uh, connections between people and, and mistresses and and, and and wives and all sorts of bizarre stuff like that. Yes. Um, so what? So so just because I'm gonna have to go soon. But what roughly happens with you that takes you to the kind of like Florida? Well, um, at the same time that uh, that. Tommy was um, was trying to start the new Maxes. Uh, I had a, I was my relationship was was winding down and falling apart. And the uh, my 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 boy wife had uh, had grown up a bit, but not become any saner. And he decided that he was going to dump me. But he took three years to dump me because he didn't 
dare to live by himself. So we continue to share the same premises, but not as uh, romantic partners. Uh, and finally, he found a new husband and I moved to, with some help from him, I moved to an apartment in Staten Island. And I was able to afford that apartment because Dave Parsons, the fellow who, who uh, was instrumental in creating the hardcore scene, had moved to Switzerland and had a Swiss record company, was starting up a record company in Switzerland, and he wanted a New York office. And so he paid half my rent, and I put the New York office in my apartment. And plus I had a job working in an, in a, in a, an antique lighting store that belonged to an old friend of mine. So therefore I was able to eke out uh, living in New York uh, with half my rent paid from, from Switzerland and the little money I was making from working in the store, I was able to make ends meet. Uh, my my record company venture with Von Elmo uh, never made any money. Uh, got fabulous reviews and and things like that, but uh, but didn't sell any product. And those distributors that did sell product, only one of the distributors actually paid me for the product. So yeah. so that that completely went bust. Uh, then. My friend in Switzerland up and dies. And there's a whole book of, of st story involved there, too. I mean, I could tell, I could be on this phone for hours telling you his story. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he died. So I didn't have any, any uh, 500 a month coming in from there. And there was no way I was not making enough money in the, in the store to... Uh, to pay a thousand. So I asked a friend of mine uh, who lives in Long Island if I could rent his in-law apartment uh, in, in the house that he owned. And he said yes, but he had to ask the wife. And the wife said absolutely not because she would never see his, her husband if I was there because we would always be doing music stuff and whatnot. And, 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 and so I was at my wit's end. I was, you know, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And he said he knew somebody in Florida who needed someone to share a house, a fellow whose who's, uh, who's girlfriend uh, who, that he shared the house with had recently committed suicide and the guy didn't have anybody to pay half the cost of the house and, and was going to lose the house and I was going to lose my, my home. I was going to be homeless. So I said, what the hell? And I packed everything into a U-Haul with a small motorcycle so I would have some way to get around when I got to Florida. 
And I drove to Florida, put most everything into the storage unit, furnished the bedroom in the house. Found out that the guy was a lunatic, uh, that you, you couldn't live with him because he would habitually sit in his lounge chair in front of the TV, smoke a lot of pot, smoke a lot of cigarettes, drink a lot of beer, pass out with a cigarette in his mouth and set himself on fire. I, uh, and I'd go put him out. And, uh, and uh, I was thinking he was going to burn the house down with me in it. And uh, I got to get out of here. So I went looking for an apartment and I found the apartment where I am now and I've been here 17 years. That's the, that's, that's the story. Oh, no. Well, it's a, it's a happy end. So look... Because it's getting a bit late here, but um, just if you could, if you could, this is going to be a tr- tricky one. If you could say something to your eighteen-year-old self, I just wondered, you know, well, an eighteen-year-old started now. What key? Uh, what, well, what, at eighteen. What what 18, key moments I have moved you learned? To New York City. Yes. <laughs> um, and divorced my parents. Uh what would I say to myself? I'd say to myself, take a piece of advice that your father gave you and that you ignored for way too long, and that's always take care of number one. Because <laughs> I took care of everybody except me. Yeah. So that, uh, yeah, that that that's it. I just should have. There were, I mean. The the tale of my life is a string of missed opportunities. Obviously, I should have said to Tommy Dean, "Give me a, a you know five percent of the bar and and a dollar off each admission," and then I could have amassed uh, some some capital, and then I would have had money. When Max's came to an end, I could have opened up a a venue. Uh, I did ask. Uh, a couple of the people that that uh, uh, who 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 in a, in a sense owed me big time for their stardom, if they would help, and uh, they turned me down flat. So uh, therefore, there I was. I'm not going to name names until I write my book. <laughs> yes, well, absolutely no. Blimey. Well, look, yeah. this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. This has been incredible insight to the world that is or was Max's Kansas City, actually. Um, You're welcome. If you, if you have anything that you want to, uh, that you want to uh, double check with me, send me an email with, 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 with any questions that you have. Yes. Um, do you have my email address? Um, I've, got, I've been in touch with you on Oh yeah, just well, no, actually, just on. No, I'll, I'll give it to you on the um, on the Facebook thing, and uh, oh yeah, and one never knows if the Facebook thing will, will will suddenly disappear. They already disappeared my my entire account because some uh, snowflake complained about me or whatever. I don't know exactly. Uh, when I say they, it isn't they. It's artificial intelligence and some stupid computer uh, but I lost 5,000 Facebook friends zap with no way to appeal <laughs> uh, the Facebook justice system is based on the Red Queen you know. yes 
sentence first, trial afterwards. Uh, only you don't get a trial even afterwards. So uh, I'll send you the, my email. That's, yeah, that's better. That's I'll just. Um, and it, is this is this for a book or for a? Oh no, this is for my kind of. Um, I suppose it will be sort of. I'll podcast it and then. I can um, send you a link, and you can always use it if you fancy. Uh, okay, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll severely edit anything stupid that I've said or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no. It's all, it all, all sounded good. It all sounded good. But look, this has been... Oh, um, I just want to follow up on the Tommy Dean thing. Oh, yeah. So Tommy Dean just disappears about 1999, and I don't hear from him until about three years ago, he pops up 15 miles from me in Florida. <laughs> and there he is living in an, a, 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 a rented condo with his wife. And they're about to be evicted. And he uh, he's, he's trying to get me to to sell this this uh, this uh, movie idea that he has about the you know his history, and I'm thinking they'll just steal it. There's you know they, they'll, they'll rewrite it slightly and and they'll never give you a dime no matter what. Yes. And he also asked me to find him a place to live that was cheaper than where he was living. So I began trying to find him a place to live, but in the meantime he jumped in the car and drove to his daughter's house in upstate New York where he proceeded to have a stroke and then he had a, 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 a he was he was still able to, to communicate somewhat after the first stroke but then he had a second major stroke and uh, it basically uh, it wasn't with us anymore although he, he was still breathing and he spent he spent his end in the in the nursing home, uh, attached to breathing machines and such like that. And then, and then uh, uh, ultimately died last year. Oh, so he's passed he's away. No, yes, he's passed away. He's he's uh, he had an exciting life, and uh, you know a lot of it was good, and some of it wasn't so good. And it was eventful. Was, it was eventful, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, well, okay, so, well, yeah. I, ho I hope you've got something of use here. Yeah, no, the... that's been amazing. Sorry. Oh, no, the cat's okay. just having a fight. And that, dear listener, if you're still with us, was my conversation with Peter Crowley talking about life in Max's Kansas City. Thank you ever so much for listening, if you still are. Uh, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check it out. They might just send you to sleep. Bye. <laughs>